At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament to the book of Habakkuk and chapter number 2. And while you are turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about when I went to college. Of course, when I went to college, it was back in the covered wagon days. Now, some of you who are younger, I I noticed you just smiled about all of that. You're thinking, yeah, I think he probably did go to college in the covered wagon days. Well, what I did when I went to college is I traveled from New Jersey to Nebraska, And when I got there, I was living in the dorm, and my dormitory mate was a guy from the city of Omaha. And Doug and I were friends, and we would often have long talks. And Doug was a biting existentialist, a budding one, rather. He he really thought, well, let me tell you this about existentialists. You might wonder what they believe. Well, basically, they believe that Everything is uncertain when it comes to human existence and the essence of what life is all about. And an existentialist would stress individual freedom to decide what they really believed. And as I tried to share with Doug about the God of the Bible, here's what he would often say to me. He would say this, your concept of God does not fit into my system. Your concept, Bruce, of God does not fit into my system. You know, really what Doug had it was completely backward. The issue is not, does the God of the Bible fit in my system? The issue is, is my system consistent with God's revelation? You might remember we saw last time that King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians in Daniel chapter 4 decided this about God. He said, God is the king of heaven. In Psalm 103, verse 19, it says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. That is what's true of him. And then also in Psalm 24 and verse one, it says this, the earth is the Lord's. And notice it says, and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. The reality is, he's God, and we're not. And that was true of my roomie Doug. That is true of me, and it is also true of you. He's God, we're not. But we often wonder, what is God doing? Especially in times of a pandemic, especially when adversity tends to avalanche on top of us, when we're having difficulty just pressing in on us. We often wonder, what is God doing when we're experiencing hurts and heartaches, when wicked and evil people seem to prosper and to be successful? We wonder what God is doing when we see people all around us flagrantly violating God's truth. And we wonder, what is God doing when fairness seems to have fled from our culture? You know, the book of Habakkuk is a great book, 56 verses that make up really what was Habakkuk's prayer journal. 
And this book is insightful, and this book is helpful to us. If you have ever wondered in your life, what is God doing? If you've ever wondered, why does he allow that? If you've ever wondered, is he ever going to do something about the things going on around us? If you've ever wondered whether or not he was listening, well, then Habakkuk is a book for you. The first two chapters of the book of Habakkuk, he's dealing with some perplexity in his life, and it involves a series of questions and answers. Question number one, which happens in verses two to four, he asks the question, where are you, God? You seem to be inactive. All this stuff is going around. I don't see you doing anything. And then we have an answer from him in verses 5 to 11 from God. And God basically says, be astonished. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Chaldeans to discipline your nation. And ultimately, he is saying there, my plan is bigger than you. And that leads to a second question, a second complaint in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1. And that's where he says, why, God? I mean, why are you doing this? How could you do this, Lord? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. You seem to be inconsistent. How can you be a holy God and you can let wicked, evil people prosper? And then God answers, which is bringing us to our study today, to chapter 2 in verses 1 to 20. Here's basically what God says back. Hey, I will make it right. I will make it right. You can trust me. Now, we can break down chapter 2 into three sections. First of all, we have Habakkuk's anticipation in verse 1. Then we have the Lord's admonition in verses 2 to 4. And then thirdly, we have the judgment to come in verses 5 to 20, where basically God's message is wait and watch. I'm going to do something special. So let's begin by looking at Habakkuk's anticipation in chapter 2 and verse 1. I want to just read verse 1. Here's what he says. Notice this. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he, God, will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. What is a rampart? Well, some of the versions of the Bible translate it watchtower. And uh, I had the privilege of going to the Pocono Mountains in northeastern Pennsylvania. And we did a family life weekend, remember, several times at the Skytop Lodge. Now, the Skytop Lodge, you see a picture of it here, was built in 1920 after World War I. And it has on top of it an observation post that allows you to look in miles in every direction around. And what is interesting is that in 1939, before World War II started, our country was worried about foreign airplanes coming over to attack America. And so what would happen in that observation post on top of the Skytop Lodge is there would be spotters there 24 hours a day, and they would be up there looking for enemy aircraft. Well, that is sort of the feeling that we have of Habakkuk. He is waiting for God to fill in the blanks. How can a holy God let unholy things happen? 
So what he is really doing is he is looking to God. He's anticipating God's response. He is teachable and he is reachable at this point. He wants the Lord to show him. What he's really done is he stopped fretting. He, he decides, I'm going to stop whining and complaining, and I'm going to listen for God's perspective. And here's what's interesting to me. His listening stance precedes God speaking to his situation. And sometimes that's what we need to do, to pause and truly listen for God to give us perspective. Well, all of that leads into the second section of chapter 2 where we see the Lord's admonition in verses 2 to 4. Look with me at verse 2. It says, The Lord answered and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. The, the whole idea is, he said, I want you to write this down. I want you to get it clear. And then this idea of the one who reads it may run, the New Living Translation translates it this way, so a runner can read it and tell everyone else. Really what God was communicating to Habakkuk is what I'm about to say, Habakkuk, is for more than just you. What I'm about to say needs to be shared with other people. Even those in the 21st century, if you would. And that gives us another common principle of God, and that is that God's truth is designed to be shared. Not something we just hold on to, but that we share it with others. Notice verse 3. He says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. Really what God is saying is it's already on my schedule. It's already on my timetable. And there's one thing about God's schedule and God's timetable. He never gets behind schedule. You see this illustrated with Jesus in John chapter 11 with the death of Lazarus, his good friend. And you remember his sisters, Mary and Martha, and, and when he'd been sick for a while, if you remember the story, and then he dies, and Jesus really delayed coming, and eventually he came to visit them in the community, and Mary runs up to him, and basically she says to Jesus, your timing was off. You should have been here a few days ago. Where were you? Basically, basically what God communicates then is, hey, my timing is never off. Jesus says, I'm right on schedule. Notice it says there in verse 3 that this vision is for an appointed time and it hastens toward the goal. Literally, in the original language, it's pants. It is panting after the goal. That's how sure it is. And it will not fail. It will certainly come. Again, I like the way the New Living Translation translates this. He says, these things I plan, notice this, won't happen right away. If it seems slow, wait patiently. And here comes the key phrase, for it will surely, surely take place. It is certain, is what God is saying. Judgment is on the way. You can count on it. Sometimes we forget that judgment is going to come on the entire world. We really do. And yet the Bible is very clear about it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 to 3, it says this. 
The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are sleeping, this is talking about those in the world, saying peace and safety. This is, this is hard to, to believe, but it's true. Then destruction will come upon them. And notice it comes on them suddenly when they're not expecting it, like labor pains on a woman with child, and they will not escape. Judgment is coming on those in the world. The Bible is clear about it. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, he says this. This is about judgment coming upon the world. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Why is he coming back, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God? And then he goes on to say this. And these who do not know God will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Think about that. Eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lamb and from the glory of his power. Now, it's very important for us to understand that there are two paths in life. They're given to us in verse 4. He says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. That's one path. But the righteous will live by his faith. And so we have two paths in life. First of all, we have the proud one, or we could say the proud person. And literally in Hebrew, it means this is the person who is swelled up, who is puffed up with pride. And you notice he says that they are self-reliant. That's really what the idea is. They are self-confident. They're self-sufficient. The person who fits on this first path in life says, I don't need God. I will do it my way. And notice of those on that path, and by the way, everyone is on one path or the other, every single one of us. He says the person on the proud path, their soul is not right. Why is that? Well, because that path ultimately leads to ruin and the judgment of God. But you notice in verse 4 we have the the word but there. This is the contrast. It says the righteous will live by faith. And by the way, this is one of the key verses that we have in the book of Habakkuk. Some people feel it's the most key verse in the entire book. Some people have said that Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, that last phrase, but the righteous will live by faith, is the verse that started the Reformation. By the way, this verse, this phrase, the righteous will live by faith, is repeated three times in the New Testament. We find it occurring in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It occurs, secondly, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. And then, thirdly, it occurs in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. The righteous, or the just, shall live by faith. This is how we begin a relationship with the living God. And this is how we live in our relationship with the living God. It's kind of interesting how central this phrase is. 
Rabbi Shimlai, uh, in the third century A.D., wrote this in the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud was the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. I find this interesting. He says, Moses wrote 613 commandments. And then he says, David reduced the 613 to 10 in Psalm 15, where he says, who can abide in your tent, O Lord, and have fellowship with you? And he lists 10 things. And then the rabbi says, Micah then takes the 10 and he reduces it to three in Micah chapter six and verse eight, where it asks, what does the Lord require of you? And it lists three things. And then he says, Isaiah came along and he took the three and he reduced it to two in Isaiah 56, one, where it just simply says, preserve justice and do righteousness. And then the rabbi said, now you come down to Habakkuk, and he reduces it down to one. And that is the righteous or the just shall live by faith. In Isaiah 26 in verse 4, it says this, trust in the Lord, have faith in the Lord, do it forever. For in the Lord God, we have an everlasting rock. Isn't that a great truth? Trust in him forever, no matter what's going on around us. For in the Lord God, we have an everlasting rock. In essence, this is what God is communicating to Habakkuk. He's saying this. Hey, look, running the universe, God says, that's my job. That's my job. Habakkuk, your job, and we could say, Our job is to trust him, to live by faith. Now, all of that leads us up to the next section in the book where he emphasizes the judgment that is to come in verses 5 to 20. And his message is really, wait and watch. It's coming. And he's going to develop five woes. We could call them five declarations of doom. And they are the basis of the judgment that God is going to bring. Now, the primary focus of the judgment that he's talking about here is a judgment that's going to come on the Chaldeans. It's going to come on the Babylonians. But there's a secondary focus. And that is, these are the bases for which Judah might be judged by God. And also, by which we in our own culture today might be judged by God. So let's look at these five declarations of doom, these five woes. The first one is found in verses 5 to 8. And the first woe or declaration of doom, why judgment is coming upon you, is insatiable greed. Look at verse 5. It says there that wine betrays the haughty man. What does haughty mean? That's not a word we use a lot. Well, it means arrogant. Wine betrays the arrogant man. And the Babylonians were known for getting high. They were known for getting drunk. And they were insatiable about their behavior. Verse 5 says they do not stay at home. They were restless. They were dissatisfied. They were always trying to get more. And notice he goes on to say here, and he's sort of personified the nation as a person. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. The NIV says, 
He is as greedy as the grave. He's never, ever satisfied at all. They were being an indulgent people, and they were making multiple attempts to fill a void in their life. And notice he says in verse 6, he says, take up a taunt song against him. A taunt song was a, a song that was done to the tune of a funeral dirge. And here's what God is really saying. From my point of view, the funeral's already started. Oh, yeah, they're going to still come and they're going to attack the nation of Judah. But in God's world, the funeral has already started. And they are going to seek to enrich themselves at the expense of other people. Notice in verse 6, he says, they enrich themselves, or rather they increase from what is not theirs at all. You know, isn't it interesting that in our own country, a lot of time we see this insatiable greed. I don't know if you feel this. I feel this from time to time, and it's not everybody but a lot of times it seems like many politicians are out to enrich themselves. Doesn't that bother you like it's bothered me that the people in our Congress have this incredible gold, platinum health care better than anything else that the rest of us can get? Is that really right? And even their own retirement that they seem completely satisfied is so much more than we get through Social Security. And then we have, oftentimes, unjust taxation. Sometimes I think we forget that everything the government gives has been taken from somebody else. Everything the government gives has been taken from somebody else. In verses 7 and 8, here's what God says. He says, this insatiable greed that you have is going to boomerang back on top of you. You know, because you've looted, verse 8, many nations, yourselves are going to be looted. By the way, this is a basic principle, if you would, of God's judgment in the Bible. In the book of Obadiah, and verse 15, here's what he says. Regarding his judgment, he says, As you have done, it will be done to you. Isn't that interesting? Your dealings will return on your own head. This is a basic principle of God's judgment. We sometimes wonder, is it going to be fair when people who've been evil or very, very evil, is it going to make any difference? And the answer is yes. And then in Jeremiah 24, verse 15, God speaking, he says, I will, listen to this, I will recompense them according to their deeds. And when you come to the book of the Revelation in chapter number 20, what's called the great white throne judgment occurs there. And what happens is all of these people are gathered together to be judged by God, those who do not know God. And it says two times there that they are judged, listen, according to their deeds, according to their deeds, according to their deeds. Here's what God is saying. Hey, I will make it right. I will make it right. The second woe or declaration of doom 
that brings the judgment of God is unbridled exploitation. We see that in verses 9 to 11. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. Those who are into illegal gain, especially to develop their own self and their own self-world, are worthy of judgment. Babylon, amazing nation, known for their hanging gardens, known for their magnificent palaces, known for their impenetrable walls. But all of that was built by ruthlessly exploiting other people. And then there's a third woe, or declaration of doom that deserves judgment, and that is ruthless violence. And we see that in verses 12 to 14. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. You know, it's maybe one of the most disturbing things I see in our culture today is this incredible outbreak of violence. We see domestic violence. We see sexual violence. We see senseless shootings. We just had one this past week at a mall in Arizona. And then you want to talk about violence. That brings us again to the subject of abortion. Killing babies in the womb of their mother. Now, one of the things that's really bothered me about the things that we have done in the last number of weeks here in the United States is we've said abortion clinics... They are essential. Many surgeries that someone needs, not essential. Many serious medical tests that someone needs, not essential. But killing babies in the womb of their mother, essential. That's, that's scary stuff, startling stuff. Look at, look at verse 14. It's talking about a day is coming when the Lord is going to make it right. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the God as the waters cover the sea. He is going to make it right. His glory is going to shine forth. You can count on it. And then we come to a fourth woe or judgment doom, and that is for shameless debauchery. We see that in verses 15 to 17. Look at verse 15. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. It's one of the things that they practice as a people. They would mix alcohol and drugs to have sex, and all this lewdness grew out of that. They were getting others drunk to take advantage of them. Taking you back to my college years, uh, at Nebraska when I was there, I lived in Abel Hall. And in Abel Hall, we had a male student there. And what this male student did is he made a poster and it had a thermometer on it. And he said, my goal for the year is to make a dozen girls drunk and then to have sexual intercourse with them. And as soon as that happened, he would move on to the next target. And guess what? He filled the chart out. He was so proud of himself. And that's the same kind of thing he's saying here can bring the judgment of God, where we view people merely as an object to be exploited or an object to be trafficked. 
I don't have to tell you, we've seen a lot of sex scandals breaking out in our nation, particularly among the wealthy and the influential and the powerful. And I want you to know those kinds of things are the kinds of things that can bring the judgment of God. It's interesting, in verse 17, he talks really about also environmental abuse being part of this shameless behavior. Uh, He noticed there, he talks about, uh, in verse 17, violence done to Lebanon, which was an area that had all these trees. And he says that violence is going to overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts, its animals, because you terrified them. There was cold-hearted devastation of the environment that the Babylonians did. Sometimes people ask the question, does God care about the deliberate devastation of the environment? And the answer really is, yes, he does. And then he says in verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. What does that mean? What's that referring to? Well, in Jeremiah 25, 15, it talks about the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And then there's a final fifth declaration of doom that he delivers, and that is regarding foolish idolatry in verses 18 and 19. Notice verse 18, he says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, or its maker trusts in his own handiwork? Remember, they would make these idols out of wood and stone and other precious metals. They're speechless, ultimately. He says, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, and to a mute stone, Arise. And then he says, That's your teacher? That's your teacher? They tell us that in Babylon, there were 50 different pagan temples to various gods, 50 different ones. And they had built their life around creating their own God. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 7, he says this about these idols that people would create to take the place of God. He says, it cannot help you when you cry for help because it's not really a God. It cannot deliver you from distress. It cannot do that. And then you say, well, Bruce, you know, idols. I mean, people don't do idols today. They don't carve idols. Some people do around the world. But a lot of times we make idols out of certain things in our life. We can make an idol out of money. We can make an idol out of stuff. We can make an idol even out of our career. We can make an idol out of sex, and that's happening all around us with the explosion of pornography. That's really what it is, worshiping sex instead of worshiping God. It's interesting to me that we even make mini-gods out of athletes and actors. We really do. We spend multiple hours following them on Twitter, much more time than we do interacting with the Lord. And a lot of times, athletes and actors can become the focal point of our life. We do it today. Some of us in our world today worship the planet without acknowledging the Creator. And then you'll notice in verse 20, the true and living, eternal God speaks. And basically, he says in verse 20, I am reigning. Notice he says, 
The Lord is in his holy temple. He's reigning right now. And then he says this, let all the earth be silent before him. That word, that phrase be silent in Hebrew is the word hasa. It's like our word hush. He's saying, listen, hasa, be quiet, be Silent, hasa, stop all this insanity about asserting that you're just independent of me. Hasa, stop all the futile attempts to dictate the way God should be in your mind. Hasa is what he says. Judgment is going to come, and it is foolish to assert that doesn't fit my system. It is coming it is certain. Really what he's saying to Habakkuk and the people of Judah and really to all of us is fall to your knees in silence because God is saying, I will make it right. Wait and watch. It's going to happen. Now what I want to do is I want to take a moment to bring our study into focus and I want to talk about for a few moments these two paths in life. And again, everyone who's listening to my voice today was either on one path or the other path. And the first path is the path of the proud person who is self-reliant and self-confident, whose soul is not right. Really, the person on this path is saying, I don't need you, God. I'm going to do it my way. Thank you very much. What is interesting is that that path we learned from Matthew 7, verse 13 leads to judgment, destruction, and to hell. Who wants to be on that path? And then the second path is the path of the righteous who live by faith. This second path leads to forgiveness. It leads to deliverance from judgment. It leads to new life. Now, here's what I want to ask for a moment. I don't know where you are today, but if you're on this first path, that leads to judgment and destruction and hell? The key question is, how do you get off that first path? How do you get off of that first path? I want to ask some important questions. If you would be on that path and you do not know God. Do you know God in a personal way? Do you have confidence in your eternal destiny today? Do you have assurance about what awaits beyond the grave? Do you know that you have eternal life? Are you ready to face your creator? If you cannot answer yes to all of those, I've got good news for you. You can, even today, answer yes to all of those. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned. That means we've all fallen short of God's standards. We've done that in our thoughts. We've done that in our words that have come out of our mouth. We've done that in our deeds. And our situation, apart from the person of Jesus, is helpless and hopeless. We are in line for the judgment of God. But here's the good news in that. Jesus came to take your judgment and my judgment. I love Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. It's very simple. It says, while we were still helpless, here it comes, 
Christ died for the ungodly. You can put your own name in there. While we were still helpless, Christ died for Bruce. What a wonderful truth that is. You see, men and women, our only hope is finding safety in Christ. And you can get off that first path today. Here's what we need to do. Number one, acknowledge our sins and that we are in line for judgment from God. That's the first thing we do. We acknowledge that. Second thing we do is we turn to Jesus as our only hope. The fact that he died for me, that we have faith in that, that we trust in that, that we rely on that. And then when we acknowledge those sins and we're in line for judgment and we turn to Jesus as our only hope, we trust in that, we rely on that, then God himself and the person, this is amazing, and the person of the Holy Spirit will take up residence in our heart and life. And so the first life response for many of us is that we turn to Jesus as our Savior. To put our faith and trust what he accomplished for us on the cross when he died us. And you can do that right now. If you're listening to my voice right now, right where you are, you acknowledge your sins, you trust in him. Human hearts are restless until they rest in him. And then the second life response is to look, for those of us who've already turned to Jesus as our rescuer from sin and judgment, to look to Jesus as our shepherd to put our faith and trust that he is at work in the world and he is at work in us. Even when it doesn't look like it, he is at work. So we should not be looking at the circumstances which are often overwhelming to us. We should not be looking to things which are fleeting and temporary. We should not be looking to ourself in our own strength and our wisdom. When our world is shaking all around us, we need to trust in the one who is unshakable. We need to trust him as followers of Jesus, even when the answers are not there, even when we don't really understand what's going on, even when we're not sure of his ways or the wise we trust in him. Several times we've ended with a classic hymn of the faith, words that can encourage us, and I want to talk for a moment and go through the lyrics of the fact that Jesus is the solid rock. Here's how the words of that song go. I love these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When darkness veils his lovely face, when all this difficulty comes, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, oh, I love this, my anchor holds within the veil. And then the words go on to say this, his oath, his covenant, his blood, they support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Father, we We again thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the perspective it gives us, what we learn from it. What a reminder that this world is going to be judged and it's going to be very harsh when it happens. For any that don't know you, Father, we would realize that today they can change it all by 
turning to Christ, acknowledging their sin, trusting in him, having the Holy Spirit come and reside inside of them. And for those of us who know you, Father, may we always, always remember that on Christ, the solid rock, we can stand, even though everything around us is sinking sand. He is our solid rock, and we thank you for that truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 